0: FILE UNDER MUSIC Music feels like the frame on which I've hung nearly every recollection, giving me access to large files of childhood memories. Each song, each note, has a memory attached to it. Just a few bars of the saxophone intro of The Girl Can't Help It by Little Richard, and out of nowhere I can see the towering leg of my father's gray sweatpants passing. I can almost feel the crusty scar of the radiator burn on my forearm and smell the creosote of asphalt shingles. The song Puff the Magic Dragon brings back the texture of the dirty linoleum floor, the spinning of the colorful label of the 45 RPM record, and the window-lit specks of dust on their journey around my room. These memories are from when I was two years old. That's a lot of detail to recall from so far back. Either that, or I have a good imagination. I recently asked my mother if it was accurate to say that I was listening to a couple of hours of music a day when I was two years old. She said, no, it was more like eight hours, splayed on the floor at my record player, organizing my records into neat stacks, and just listening. And I would become an absolute irate little jackass when interrupted. Eight hours. Damn, that's obsessive. But then, some things never change. It's also a lot of input and stimulation for such a young brain. I happen to believe that all the music I listened to in my toddlerhood has served as a memory tool of sorts. Maybe that's why I can accurately describe the floor plan of our house on Winstead Place in Greensboro, North Carolina where all the furniture was placed, where the Christmas tree was, which radiator to avoid ever touching again, the jar of salt I would never again mistake for sugar, and the small black and white TV playing a rocket launch from Cape Kennedy. We left that house in Greensboro when I was three. In fact, We moved nearly every year of my childhood, and I can tell you these sorts of things about each house we lived in. Neurologists and music therapists are increasingly convinced of the effect of music on the brain. A music therapist friend of mine likes to say that music lights up the brain like a Christmas tree. She's referring to the large regions of brain scans that light up when stimulated by music. Other important functions, like speech, activate far smaller areas. In fact, there is an observable physical difference between a musician's brain and everyone else's. Here, I googled this for you so you wouldn't think I was crazy. Using a voxel-by-voxel morphometric technique, neuroscientists have found gray matter volume differences in motor, auditory, and visual-spatial brain regions when comparing professional musicians with a matched group of amateur musicians and non-musicians. From, brain structures differ between musicians and non-musicians. Christian Gosser and Gottfried Schlag, Journal of Neuroscience, October 8, 2003. But neuroscience is not my area of expertise, and this is not a book of science or facts. This is a book about what I know, or what I think I know. It's about music and how it has framed and informed my life, and vice versa. About the stumbles, falls, and other brilliant strokes of luck that brought me here. A Dream About Lightning Bugs Here's a dream I had when I was three years old. It's the first dream I can remember. It was set in one of those humid southern dusks I knew as a kid. The kind of night where I'd look forward to the underside of the pillow cooling off so I could turn it over and get something fresher to rest my head on for a good minute or so. The old folks described this sort of weather as close. In my dream, a group of kids and I were playing in the backyard of my family's home in Greensboro, North Carolina. Fireflies. Lightning bugs as some of the old folks called them, lit up in dazzling succession and sparkled around the backyard. Somehow, I was the only one who could see these lightning bugs, but if I pointed them out or caught them in a jar, then the others got to see them too, and it made them happy. This was one of those movie-like dreams, and I recall one broad, out-of-body shot panning past a silhouetted herd of children with me out in front. There was joyous laughter And a burnt sienna sky dotted with flickering insects that no one else could see until I showed them. And I remember another tighter shot of the children's faces lighting up as I handed them glowing jars with fireflies I captured for them. I felt needed and talented at something. Now, this dream wasn't any kind of revelation. Hell, I was barely three years old. And although it stuck with me all these years, I've never taken it to be a message from above that I'm a chosen prophet or Joseph from Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. However, a half-century later, it's obvious to me that the dream reflects the way I see artistry and the role of an artist. At its most basic, making art is about following what's luminous to you and putting it in a jar to share with others. Here you go, a melody. See? I found it. It's always been right there. That's why it's so familiar. Maybe it was in the rhythm of the washing machine. The awkward pause in a conversation, or the random collision of two radio stations blasting from two different cars, and how it reminded you of your parents trying to be heard over one another. Remove a note, one flicker, and it's the sound of the door closing for the last time, and her footsteps fading into the first silence in forever. But wait, nope. The silence wasn't really silence after all, you just weren't paying attention. There's always sound beneath the sound you hear or something else to see when your eyes adjust. It turns out there was also the sound of children playing outside your window, and below that, the buzz of a ceiling fan. That's a sound you'd overlooked before, but now it's all you can hear. We all see different flickers in a busy sky. That's where the melodies live. What do you notice It glows beneath the silence? Can that glow be bottled or framed? From time to time, we all catch a split second glance of a stranger in a storefront window before realizing it's our own reflection. A songwriter's job is to see that guy, not the one posing straight on in the bathroom mirror. As we speed past moments in the day, we want to give form to what we feel, what was obvious but got lost in the shuffle. We want to know that someone else noticed that shape we suspected was hovering just beyond our periphery, and we want that shape. That flicker of shared life experience, captured in a bottle, playing up on a big screen, gracing our living room wall, or singing to us from a speaker. It reminds us where we have been, what we have felt, who we are, and why we are here. We all see something blinking in the sky at some point, but it's a damn lot of work to put it in a bottle. Maybe that's why only some of us become artists, because we're obsessive enough, idealistic enough, disciplined enough, or childish enough to wade through whatever's necessary, dedicating life to the search for those elusive flickers above all else. Who knows where this drive comes from? Some artists, I suppose, were simply cultivated to be artists. Some crave recognition, while others seek relief from pain or an escape from something unbearable. Many just have a knack for making art, but I'd like to think that most artists have had some kind of dream beneath the drive, whether they remember it or not. I'm amazed when someone sees a sculpture inside a rock while the rest of us just see a rock. I say, hell yes, to the architects who imagine the spaces we will one day live in. And a round of applause for the stylist who sees what hair to cut to make me look respectable for a couple of weeks. I bow low and fast in the direction of those who paint amazing things on the ceilings of chapels, make life-changing movies, or deliver a stand-up routine that recognizes the humor in the mundane. What all those artists have in common is that they point out things that were always there, always dotting the sky. Now we can take it in and live what we missed. My dream about lightning bugs still fills me with the same pride and sense of purpose as it did when I was three. It reminds me that my job is to see what's blinking out of the darkness and to sharpen the skill required to put it in a jar for others to see. Those long hours of practice, the boring scales, the wading through melodies that are dead behind the eyes in search of the ones with heartbeats, and all that demoralizing failure along the way, the criticism from within and from others, and all the unglamorous stuff that goes along with the mastering of a craft, it's all for that one moment of seeing a jar light up a face. And sure, sometimes someone tells me I'm great or stuffs a dollar into my G-string. I can't say it's not about me sometimes, too. I've done well. But that's not really what drives me. That's not really what it's all about. It's not about immortality, either. I accept that one day, my music will be gone forever. So will the Sistine Chapel, Bruce Lee movies, and all the silly arts and crafts my aunt ever bought. Gone with the wind. Making songs is something I do here and now. Because light captured is just a moment, a flicker. Like any musical performance, it's not repeatable. But there's always another. As each of my thousands of gigs is let out, the crowds have gone their separate ways. The lid opens, the sun comes up, and the lightning bugs disappear into the light of day, invisible again. Well after I'm gone, some kid will be chasing the flickering lights through the backyard in his dreams. Joy at his heels. Watch me eat this sandwich. Benjamin, how old are you? I'm six. How old are you, Papa? I'm 26. Now watch me eat this sandwich. Dean Folds, my father, was and is a chronic smartass. A carpenter, contractor, and building inspector a good 70 hours a week. The poor guy just didn't have time to watch me do every little thing under the sun. And I was a persistent and downright obsessive little shit. Anything I did or set my mind to, I wouldn't stop, couldn't stop. And it consumed the entire house. My brother, Chuck, wasn't like this, luckily, for my parents. My relentless nature was a problem that neither reason nor punishment was able to solve. Putting the brakes on my focus or interrupting me would come at the expense of that night's sleep for everyone. I was one of those children. Papa discovered I could be neutralized by absurdity, frozen in my tracks by distraction with something out of left field. Absurdity comes naturally to Dean Folds, who has an endless supply of crazy shit up his sleeve for any occasion. Before I could ask him to watch me stand on my toes, he dipped me with, Benjamin, come here, watch me take this trash out. Or, Mr. Ben, Mr. Ben, come in here and watch this, watch me brush my teeth. Who wants to watch anyone doing all that stuff? What a needy bastard, I thought, and just went somewhere else. One evening I cut Papa off at the pass in the hall as he was making his daily beeline from the pickup truck to the bedroom, still in his paint-streaked, muddy work clothes. Look at this, I said, extending a sculpture of a face I'd made with Play-Doh as far into the heavens towards his 6 foot tunis as I could manage. He leaned over to study it for a moment. Then he took my creation into his giant hands and he stood back up, far away, close to the ceiling where the air was thinner and began picking bits of it apart. He reconstructed its innocent smile into an evil one, with sharp, jagged teeth and beady eyes. He took our frightening collaboration into my bedroom and placed it on a chair in the middle of the room. Then he turned the light out. He comes alive in the dark, Papa said, and disappeared into the bathroom. Satanic Play-Doh Man stood between me and the bedroom lamp, so I paced outside of my dark bedroom, trying to figure out how I'd ever get the light back on without being eaten. Chuck came into the world when I was two, but I don't remember my brother's arrival somehow. I was completely lost in my own world, where I remained for most of my childhood, and poor Chuck had no idea what he'd gotten himself into when he joined the family. Our entire youth was marked by my obsessions and my projects, scattered around the house. From my constant loud record playing to my incessant piano pounding later in grade school. Oh, and God help them all when I eventually got some drums. Not just because of the noise, but because I also would take them completely apart in our small house, leaving everyone to step over rims, lugs, and drum heads. Sadly, our parents were too busy to come to Chuck's defense and too tired to deal with me. When Chuck and I shared a room, it wasn't quite what you'd call shared space. Chuck had to hide in a corner, or go outside to get some peace. My grandmother thought spending eight hours at the record player was pretty odd and sprang for a child psychologist when I was three. After the good doctor sat with me for an hour, he confirmed that I was slow and should be kept behind a year or two in school. But when my grandmother asked about the examination, Mama said, It went great. She even went a step further and insisted that the doc said I was ahead for my age which, of course, left my grandmother scratching her head. Mama, whose given name is Scotty, decided to ignore the shrink and allowed me to continue my full-time listening. She probably didn't have a choice anyway. I wasn't going to be stopped. She and I both remember nights when she would rush me from my room to the sofa in the living room at one in the morning to try to calm me down. I was quite the night screamer. She'd cover my mouth with her hand and rock me on her lap, whispering loudly, Shh! Papa's been working all day and needs to sleep. Shh. I think the visit to the psychologist is what prompted Mama to start reading to me every night, something she did regularly for a few years. I became just as interested in reading Greek mythology, memorizing and organizing the gods and the mortal characters, as I was in sorting my forty-five RPM records. It's like the way some little boys memorize all the Pokemon characters. Soon I loved astronomy and took a shine to all things atomic. The table of elements was catnip for an obsessive little boy who liked lists and numbers. A few years later, Mama doubled down on her objection to the doctor's prognosis, starting me in first grade a year early. I was the youngest one in the class. My hyperfocus and inability to deal with interruption, along with a variety of other odd behaviors, might have easily been seen as a sign of something to worry about but my parents never made me feel there was anything wrong with me. Mama herself had an artistic streak, which didn't fit neatly in a world of the Southern working class and the filthy-mouthed construction workers who often featured in our lives. She became a defense attorney of sorts for my creative leanings, exposing me to music, taking me to youth orchestra, and validating artistic interests that might have otherwise been deemed frivolous in a working man's house. Because in the 1970s, In the blue collar South, artsy things would normally have been written off as being for queers. She recognized that I had art in my bones, and I think that's why she defied the child psychologist. It was in defense of creativity. She saw my flunking of the doctor's test as proof of my imagination. I reminded her of herself. My mother wasn't a stage mom or anything, though. I don't remember my parents ever telling me to practice. When I began piano and drums in fourth grade, I became my own taskmaster. My parents bent in the wind like reeds as I terrorized the household with painfully long sessions of repeated phrases at the piano or snare drum. And I had horrible temper tantrums when I felt I wasn't getting it right. Breaking of furniture, thrown sticks, shredded music. I'm not aware of anyone else in the family who played music seriously. Well, there was my Aunt Sharon, who I hardly viewed as a musician at all. In my young, unearned snobbery, I wrote her off. But actually, she'd majored in music. I thought she had an awful warble of a voice and a rushing, brutish tone on the piano, and I distanced myself from her as I learned music. The feeling turned out to be mutual. When I began playing piano and making up songs, Aunt Sharon told me my music was noise pollution and that I didn't need to bother writing songs because no good music has been made since the 19th century. We had forgotten the art of composition long ago, she said, and a piano pounding nine year old wasn't going to be the one to revive it. Despite all this, I should mention that she did show me how to notate one of my songs, and she explained what a key center was, and that was certainly something a big something. She also spent a lot of her life documenting shape note singing in the Appalachians. So, hey there, young Ben, chill about this woman. She's your aunt, for Christ's sake, and she made a difference. And then there was my Uncle Jim, who had a knack for music and had learned a few Leon Russell piano riffs by ear. He never had lessons or training, but it was helpful to see an adult enjoying music. He also took a great interest in the songs I wrote when I was just a kid, and that went a long way. Mama was, and is, a talented visual artist, but never a lover of the spotlight. Around the time I was in kindergarten, she put some of her stuff in local art contests and won. She began to get a lot of interest in her work, which was very exciting. At least Papa thought so, and he started planning how they could make a business of selling her art. Imagine that. Art putting food on the table. Right up there with honest work. But upon being offered money for her watercolor paintings, she quit making art altogether. She didn't make another piece that I'm aware of for at least three decades. She recently returned to her art, but she sticks to markers on a dry erase board. Wax on, wax off. She drags an eraser over it when she's done, and it's gone.